It is the uh, Bob Count Podcast. I am the aforementioned, and uh, along with, as always, John Shannon. And if you're watching this, you probably can tell that I'm on my uh, my phone. We don't as care. opposed to on my computer. Since, we don't care. Since my why well, I'm I'm venting. Well, since stop. Rogers is down. Oh, d- oh. only in your neighborhood. Actually, well, Bob, only at your only other neighborhood. Actually, to, to be honest, Bob, I hear it's only at your house. <laughs> well, you wouldn't know since you are not even in yours. That's a good you're point. In a foreign, you've gone to a foreign country. Um, I just want to, uh, and I want to alert the immigration people uh, that John's <laughs> going to be coming back soon and give them hell. Uh, basketball talk today. We haven't done we haven't done that for a while, nope. and uh, the draft is upcoming. Um, and we want to get into that a little bit, but we also want to dissect what we saw this year, and you know the success of the two franchises specifically that got to the NBA final, and what do the Toronto Raptors have to do to elevate themselves into that category? Is it development or do they have to make change? We're going to talk about it with uh, two of our pals. Uh, Paul Jones, Doug Smith, and we'll commence after these messages. Hey, it's McCowan and Shannon back with you, and we are joined by the um, the team of Smith and Jones, not the lozenge company. Uh, although we may get into lo- a need for lozenges at some point in this uh, conversation today. Uh we have a uh, an NBA champion, and I assume, before we go anywhere else, you're not shocked by this, that Golden State beat Boston, or are you, uh, nah, Smitty? Not, not in the least. <clears throat> not in the least. In fact, I'm surprised it went six games. It should have been over. If you look at it, they blew the fourth quarter of game one and the fourth quarter of game yeah. three. It could have been over four. So I, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. I think they were the better team. They were the best team in the playoffs start to finish. They are as dynastic a group as we're going to see in our lifetimes, because they, they are really something else. They're not done yet. No, I, I agree, Smitty. They're not, they're not done yet. They get, uh, they get James Wiseman back next year, and he's just learning how to play. Um, and if it's uh, the, what they did with Andrew Wiggins is any indication of how they can bring young guys along. I mean, we always say it's where you go and who you're playing with. And Andrew Wiggins transformation had a lot to do with that. But I thought they were the better team. Like I, I looked at the worldwide leader and their BPI basketball power index at the start of the series, the mathematicians getting into the game saying Boston had an 86% chance of winning. I'm like, don't listen to those guys. Don't bet a shuttle. According to that, we got, a even ban, when was, we got a ban mathematicians. I, from I, all, I, sports. Thank you, Smitty. all sports. Thank you. Get rid like, of them. It, it's, it's, it's two, two, with two of the three games in Golden State, and they're saying Boston has a 71% chance of winning. I'm like, so I know nothing after watching this game and being involved for 50 years. Like, as Smitty said, Golden State, clearly, in my eyes, the better team. Not necessarily more talented team, but the better team. You know, Paul, Paul, uh, you and and I texted on the night of game six, and and I said – Imagine if Steve Kerr had taken the Knicks job. Remember how close he was to joining Phil Jackson yeah. oh so long ago and then ended up going to Golden State. I mean, the, the history that would have been changed, the history that would be different. Would would Golden State be Golden State without Steve Kerr? Smitty, you want to weigh in first? I, I don't think so. I think he's the, he's the right kind of mature uh, experienced leader that that team needed. I think you know, Mark Jackson did a good job getting them to a point, but Kerr is absolutely responsible for them developing as a group and staying together mentally. Cause he's just, he's just a great leader. I saw a stat. There's been what 75 NBA champions and he's got nine of them. That's like 12% mm. of all NBA titles have been won by Steve Kerr teams, either playing <laughs> or coaching, which is pretty astounding. If you, if you look at it that way, um, especially in this day and age. But I think the way he's a lot, in my, in my opinion, he's a lot like Steve Nash is. He leads by being the grown-up in the room. And people naturally gravitate towards him. And, you know, he's brought 
it's a disparate group of players. Like Draymond Green can't be easy to manage. You know, he, he weathered two years of no Clay Thompson. He sort of changed the dynamic of the way the game is played with Curry and Thompson. So I, I think he doesn't get – we talk about the great coaches of all time, and they go to Auerbach, Jackson, Riley maybe, Pop. I think Kerr's got to be in this very, very short list. I really do. Yeah. Doug, there's people, there's this misnomer that, oh, I could win with Curry and Thompson and those guys. Or you, you look at, you know, the, some of the guys you talked about, Pop and Phil Jackson. And, oh, well, if I had Kobe, I could win too. Not really. It's, it's harder than you think to manage a team with stars and meld egos. And, and you're right. There are times when, I mean, look, you, you, Steve Nash is a great example because you look at how he's doing his best to manage Kyrie Irving in the circus that is the Nets. Well, Steve Kerr, it can't be easy sometimes with Draymond Green. Uh, the same oh. way Phil Jackson had Dennis Rodman for a while. You take him in the back room and you talk to them, but it, they're going to do what they do out in public. And, and it's, hard, it, it's hard to strike that balance of knowing uh, when to be out front and when to sit back. Chuck Daly was another one who I think was very good at that too. So uh, you, to your point, John, history would have been very, very different. He lasts, yeah. if he goes to New York under Phil Jackson, he lasts two, maybe three years, and then he becomes somebody's lead assistant on numerous benches around wow. the NBA. That, that, was, <laughs> that was a great move to go to Golden State. He's the, yeah, TV, the actually, guy, he's the TV guy he always was. That's he would be back, right. be back at our, our our televisions once a week. You, you, there was one uh, sequence in Game Six, and I'm sure you guys remember it, where where Draymond goes to the hoop and gets called for the foul. Right? Or maybe actually, I take it back. Maybe he was the defender, and then he turned to the bench and said, "You know, we got a challenge," and nothing happened. And then he had a full tantrum on the on the court. We got a challenge. And then he slammed the ball down and yelled at Kerr. And Kerr just said, yeah, okay, we'll challenge. <laughs> and it was and, – and they lost the challenge. So all of a sudden, Kerr has taken this really tough little situation with one of his stars and said, okay, well, I, we'll trust you this time. We're going to believe you, and we're going to challenge for you, but you better be right. And he was wrong. And, you know, their Draymond's has, has had got to buy into the curse system one more time. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, right. I'm also I'm right. also of the opinion that uh, off data that coaches get too much credit when things go good and too much blame when things go bad. But I think the great ones really shine. And I think Kerr is a great one. One of the intriguing things for me is the <laughs> attitude that coaches um, convey. And we're acknowledging the greatness of Kerr as a coach. But at the same time. I think this group thinks that Nick Nurse is a good coach, even a great coach. And yet they are the polar opposite in terms of attitude on the bench and reaction to things. Nurse never shuts up, never stops complaining, never stops yelling. And I don't pretend to have any idea what that means or what that conveys to his players. But Kerr reminds me kind of of John Cooper, the coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning you know, rarely yells and screams, rarely gets upset. I've, I've said this a million times, basically stands there with his arms folded behind the bench and just watches things evolve. How, how should we react to the Kerr-Nurse comparison? I want to jump in here. In, in that sense, Phil Jackson, you read his books and, and you know, a guy like Riley too, they always say most of your coaching is done in practice and you're trying to make adjustments over the course of the game. But I, I think it has to do with the way you uh, manifest your competitive spirit. That's Nick. He's, he's up. He's, he's, he's on, he's, you know, on his guys and on the refs. He's working for the next call. Uh, and I think to me, if I'm a player on that team, it's like, Man, this guy wants it as bad as we do. And when you get a situation like Steve Kerr or Phil Jackson that, you know, Phil had the famous, the famous poses where he was just, you know, and he'd get up every so often. It's not that they're not competitive, but they, 
they're they're trying to be like the EF Hutton. When they stand up and speak, they wanted to have uh, relevance. They wanted to have impact with the officials. Whereas, uh, you know, as a player on either team, you know your guys behind you. I, I just think that's more of Nick's personality coming out in terms of his, his competitive nature. And I, I think sometimes even officials in the NBA take it as, oh, here's this guy again. But, hey, he's competitive and he's got a different kind of team too. He's not a big name team like Los Angeles or Golden State or, or Miami or somebody like that. And I think he's got to work a little harder. And I, I don't have a I don't have a problem with it. That's just the way he is. I do oh. think I do think it's counterproductive. I do think if a coach is going crazy all the time, and, and Nick is, he does it too much, in my opinion. I agree. One, it has a, a, a negative effect on his players because I think they react as emotionally as the coach does, and I think that's problematic. And I think the referees just get bored of it. I had a guy, a referee, pretty good friend of mine, when Dwayne Casey was working here, and the referee's nickname for Case was the Doc of the East. Like, Doc Rivers complains on every call when he coaches the Clippers, and Casey complained on every call when he's with the Raptors. He was known as the Doc of the East. And it worked against him with the officials. And, and I think Nick is almost on the side of too overreactive too often because it becomes noise. And the players... I think the players have a tendency to get as emotional as a coach does sometimes, and that's mm -hmm. kind of productive. I really I, agree. I'll say this. I, I'll Kyle say this Lowry, though, Bob. Kyle Lowry was the was the was was the guy that I saw it in most. And and that yeah. was and that was the example, Bob. That's the example I'm going to bring up though. At some point in the game with Kyle, he would always say, "Okay, screw this. Let's play. No more. No. Get, let's get off the refs and let's play." And you know, if, you know, Doug, I know you said you think it's counterproductive. That might have been the point where things turn because I could see it in Kyle every game. And he had this reputation for like Kyle would do something and it would be a foul and somebody else would do something and they'd let it go. And Kyle would say, if that was me, that would be a foul. And then at that point, he would realize, OK, you know what? Screw these guys. I'm just going to play. And he focused on playing and becoming more aggressive and he got the calls that way. And I, and I think, look, if I'm, if I'm a player, there's part of me that wants my coach up there digging with me for every call. Is it right? Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, who's the guy in the NHL like that? Is Torts like that? Yeah, he might be again, but maybe he's learned. I'm glad you said what you said, <laughs> Doug, because um, I, I thought during the Philly series against the Sixers, uh, it manifested itself in Van Vliet. It manifested itself on a couple of other, other players on the court that they were now carrying what Nurse was saying. And it really bothered me because, I, I, I mean, I don't mind players losing their cool. I really don't. I mean, I think that, that you, you play to the edge and every once in a while you play over. But I don't think a coach, I don't think a coach can go over the edge. I really don't. I think that that's part, that has to be part of his 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 playbook i will play to the edge i will know how far to push and then when i when i think i've crossed the line i'm going to stop and there were times during that series that i don't think nick knew when to stop i really yeah, don't I, I, there are moments in, in a lot of games over the course of even a regular season where that happens but to jonesy's point and kyle you're right kyle's the point of kyle is absolutely right he he knew when to shut up and when to go play yeah but it's also He's an outlier. He's like a 12-year veteran who's a smart guy. Nick's got a bunch of young kids. Yeah. And, and I think well, that, that, but that's my point of the yeah, influence that the 100 percent And that's my point of the players sometimes reacting because they don't know any different. Kyle was a smart right. guy. Kyle knew what the hell was going on every play, every game. I'm I'm not sure this group does yet. And I think that's the danger. Now, again, does it have an uh, an absolute uh, impact on the outcome of each game? I don't think so. But in moments in games, I think it does have a, a detrimental effect to the way the Raptors play in a four or five minute span. Uh, we're going to take a break and uh, we'll come back and we're going to discuss well, more about the Raptors and uh, the NBA in general. But the draft is uh, upcoming and um, we'll check on the potential impact of that. We'll do that after these messages. McCown, Shannon, Smith and Jones back with you. So did we... 
Do we come to any consensus here? I mean, my sense is Jones is defending Nurse. Smith, I think, tends to agree with me that Nick probably goes a little too far. Um, I don't know where are you, Shannon, on this. No, I, 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 I was. I, I mentioned to the guys, and I mentioned to these and some friends in the Raptor organization. I thought that Nick crossed the line a couple of times in the Philly series, and I think it exacerbated situation in a couple of those losses. Uh, and uh, that's the time when your head coach can't lose his cool. That's the time when the head coach has to lead by example. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that uh, that's the reason they lost, but I am suggesting that hopefully he learned something from it. Yeah, I, I, John, I'll jump in. I'll say this. Um, <clears throat> boy, easier said It was a frustrating series. It was, it was a frustrating yeah. series. I know. Easier said than done at times. I mean, Embiid was the biggest guy in the gym, and he was always on the ground and begging for a call and flopping like a fish out of water. And, you know, Nick's trying to point that out. The players are. But that, that, that is really easier said than done. And I think it speaks to your competitive style. And when you feel like you're a team that uh, is always getting the short end, you know, it, it's, and, and again, I, at a different level, I'll say that as a coach. Like I, and I'm glad I'm, glad I'm not coaching right now because if you think that kind of stuff is bad, I'd be way over the top. Like I just, your competitive spirit comes out in that way. And it's tough to control. Our our colleague Jack Armstrong has a great oh, oh. line. He says, he says, I hated myself when I was coaching. And if you see any of the video of our guy Jack when he was coaching, you would say this guy, like it's it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is not the guy you sit and have a beverage with. He would and, and look, let me let me bring this example up. Doug talked about Doc and how he, he is always pushing the limits. In game three. When Doc Rivers called his timeout, he was basically in front of Nick Nurse and the Raptor bench. Whereas at the end of regulation, <coughs> Nick Nurse, like a good choir boy, was standing in his coaching box with a timeout signal above his head with a few tenths of a second left and didn't get the timeout. And when the refs approached the bench, he put his hands up and he said, I'm trying to get a timeout. And they went, sorry, didn't hear you, didn't see it. Doc Rivers and Eric Spolstra are the two worst in the NBA. They walk out onto the floor when they want a timeout. And the referee looks at them and turns and says, instead of thinking, hey, you're on the floor, that's a technical foul, they look and they say, what are you doing out here? He goes, I wanted a timeout. Like that's, so that, that in itself right there at the end shows, to me, it showed how one guy pushes it and gets away with it. And maybe it's the, the, the Toronto-centric part of me. One guy pushes as a guy that is on a team that isn't recognized as much, and it's shut up and sit down. Uh, well, I can't believe the- you're playing that card. I, I can't hey, believe you're playing I've that been there Toronto-centric a level. card. Come on. I've been there at a different level, John. All I know is the Raptors are the second winningest team in the NBA in the last seven years. So if the league hates them, the league's yeah. doing a bad job at it. Exactly. Well, I, that's there's truth in that, but we we are we've been talking about two of really the great coaches of the recent era in the NBA in Jackson and Kerr, who have have similar styles on the bench. And I spent a lot of years, and you guys will know this, with uh, a coach who won over 800 games in college basketball. I never saw him get a technical. I never saw him get get overly involved. And that was Jerry Tarkania. Whether you like him or don't like him, he had a, you know, he had a superb record over 800 wins. Very few coaches have done that. And he had the same kind of attitude, basically sat there and, and absorbed it all. So I don't know how you can say that that style isn't successful. The question is. I think is, are all styles successful? Well, yeah, I think like, well, obviously Greg Popovich is pretty emotional. He gets thrown right. over half a dozen games a year, and he's won what? He won five NBA titles. Yeah, right, yeah. I'll so give you, that one. you you can be good on the other end. You can be successful to go on the other way too. And again, it, it's it's how your players react to you. I yeah. think is the biggest yeah. deal. I think that's the most important thing. The coaches lead in that respect. And I think a young team like the Raptors are go the wrong way sometimes. Sometimes with Nick, and I think a veteran team 
with Steve Kerr, say, yeah, okay, yeah, like him, calm down, we'll get it, we'll figure it out in the end. And, and then it works for them. So, you know, would, would Kerr's style work with a bunch of 22-year-olds? I don't know. Would Nick's style work with a bunch of 31-year-olds, 32-year-olds? Well, it did, and he won an NBA title with it, but he wasn't, wasn't quite as demonstrative because he didn't have to be because his team was so damn good. Well, and on the other on the other on the other side, would 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 Kerr be this calm with a group of twenty two year olds? No, he might kill them all. He might murder them all. Steve Kerr is the most competitive guy I may have met. He's absolutely like, like steams when guys screw up. He's absolutely the most one of the most competitive guys I've ever known. But he doesn't show what he doesn't show it outwardly. But I would hate to be on his bad side in practice because he might kill you. This guy learned well, from the best. He learned from Jordan, for God's sakes. Exactly. Well, we won't resolve this one way or the other. But uh, And maybe there is no answer. Um, maybe it's irrelevant. Um, maybe it doesn't matter how, you're, how you react as a coach. Uh, let's get to where the Raptors are. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we've seen them on the floor. But we've had a chance to watch some very good teams. Some teams, quite frankly, they're better than the Raptors. Uh, proceed to the NBA championship with Golden State at the top of the, the list. And I think it allows us to better observe what this Toronto team needs to do to get to that level, if it's possible. And I guess the big question is, can they do it with this collection of talent that they have right now? Smitty, I'll give it to you first. Can they? I I think the only difference between them and the, this year's Boston Celtics is about two years. So, yes, I do. The Celtics were a very good team, led mm-hmm. by a very good player in Jason Tatum. And Jalen Brown had a great series. Basically, no point guard. Al Horford played at 36 like we never thought he would. Are the Raptors that far from the Boston Celtics? I say no, because I think in 18 months or a season and a half, Siakam will be Tatum. I can absolutely see... Scotty Barnes being Jalen Brown plus. And I see the Raptors as a, as a young group that's going to be very, very good in a couple of years. They have to tweak on the, on the edges, no question about it. They got to shoot better. They got to get backcourt depth. We all, we've known this since last November, for God's sake. But as a, as a collective, this team is as good as anybody in the Eastern Conference. They just need a little bit more time. Well, do they shoot well enough, though? Do they shoot no, threes well enough? That, that's the, the, t- the tweaking on the edges. Maybe they do shoot threes well enough in 18 months. Maybe Barnes becomes a three-point shooter. Maybe Gary Trent becomes that shooter off the bench and, and is able to shoot as a catch-and-shoot guy rather than having to dribble. Maybe they get, they get a guy. That's the tweaking on the edges that they need. But as, as a, uh, a core group, Van Vliet, Siakam, Barnes, I think a Chua, I put, uh, put a Chua in that group. I would put OG Ananobi in that group. I think they're very good. And I just think they need a little bit more time to figure each other out. They need some some shooting help, obviously. But the Celtics need shooting help. The Celtics are a horrible three-point shooting team in the finals. Everybody needs shooting help, except Golden State, because they have the the best to ever do it. I agree. I agree with the shooting part. Uh, it's, it's, It's like nice clothes. You can never have too many, you know? Uh, I'd say money, but I don't know what that's like. Um, never have too much. Um, and, and to Smitty's point, it's experience. I, I just think they got a taste this year. Uh, that was the goal this year to, to get those guys, uh, <clears throat> not just not just the play-in, but to get them a feel for a seven-game series, uh, especially their young guys who they're going to depend on, and they need experience. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's a huge key in um, – in advancing, I, I I don't think you can. Very few people or teams are excellent at something the first time they do it, and and I think you know when you see a, a kid like Achua, as as Doug said, who's you know probably moving into uh, a, a, as a guy who's part of the core. You need to experience that. I, I I I always go back. You guys are hockey guys. I always go back to the Herb Brooks thing. He said you don't beat the Russians the first time you play them. And they got whomped by them and then beat them in the Olympics. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's, you know, on a different level, it's the same kind of thing with these Raptors. Uh, even for guys like Fred and Pascal, who were holding the trophy at one point, they're in different roles now with this team. And they need that experience too. So 
give it give it a couple years. Um, uh, you know, they, the 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 Scotty Barnes draft pick. Uh, it's it's rare that you go to the bottom and jump that quickly. Look at Golden State two years ago. They weren't even invited to the freaking bubble for crying out loud. And they picked James Wiseman. And then they lose in the play-in game. And then the next year, they're NBA champions. I mean, it can happen that quickly yeah. if you have the right people. Uh, I'm not saying the Raptors are going to do that. But it also speaks to, uh, as Doug said, a few tweaks and experience. So, so the expectation for both of you guys then is that this is a season, this will be a quieter offseason? Because let's, let's give credit where credit's due. Uh, Bobby Webster and, and Masai made the right move at the key time. You know, this was the, the you, know, uh, you know, the Kawhi trade was the trade to go all in, in the year to go all in. This at is the right the year time, go- John. That's right. Everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it was. It was. I, I. I've got. I got seven aces. I'm playing all seven. Right. I mean, um, it, it's. This is not the summer to do that for this team, is it? I, I don't. I don't think so because I'm not sure the no. guy like Kawhi is out there. But if he is, you got to go get him because if you got to accelerate it, you got to accelerate. You don't get that many shots. And the, the thing, the thing I don't think a lot of people realize is that they got Kawhi because they had Demar. Like, they, That's right. They, they, you you had a piece like Johnny said, seven aces. You got a you got a guy who can play to get a guy like that. I'm not sure they got that guy right now to, to make that kind of uh, acquisition this summer. And I don't think that kind of Kawhi guy is out there this summer. I don't mm-hmm. think Brad Beal's it. I certainly don't think Kawhi or, uh, uh, Kyrie Irving is it. I don't think uh, 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 the guy that's uh, Rudy Gobert is it at all. And I don't think DeAndre Ayton is it. I don't think that guy is out there to go get. But if he is, and you got a chance to go, you got you got to make the call because you don't these opportunities don't come around too often. I agree, though, Smitty. I, I think John, to your point, um, patience um, and and keep developing assets so that you can make a move. Uh, look, that that championship team was eight years in the making in terms of developing. Look at all the guys you developed to trade. To get people, mm-hmm. you traded Valanciunas. People wanted him. You traded Demar. People wanted him. Uh, you traded Pirtle. People wanted him. Like you, 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 there's a in major championship golf, you shoot for the middle of the green, and and just hit the green fairways, greens, make putts. And one of these times, the flag's going to be in a spot where you can go at it, and you go at it. But in the meantime, you're patiently building and 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 putting things together. I. I think that's where they are. The Scotty Barnes not missing on a lottery pick was huge. That was huge because there are teams, and we're going to talk about the draft in a minute. There are teams that miss all the time on draft picks and just continually stay in the lottery and keep picking the wrong people. They knew as much as people didn't want to admit that at the time, that Scotty Barnes was going to be, you know, I don't know if they saw him where he was uh, with that kind of growth, but they knew they had a guy that, uh, you know, was going to be a cornerstone for the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name, his, his, sorry, John, his name came up, but I, while we're on the subject, I wasn't going to talk about it, but uh, it looks like Kyrie is available. Uh, it looks like Brooklyn has no interest in having him back, um, which doesn't shock me, but may shock some basketball people who don't know anything about personality or pay any attention to it and only look at performance on the court. He's an extraordinarily talented guy, but he's a complete and total head case. He's divisive. I assume you you guys would have no interest in the Raptors looking at him, correct? Even if you could get in the country, I would have zero interest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might be able to now. I don't know. I don't think the vaccine... That aside from it, the vaccination insanity aside from it, I wouldn't put him on my team in a million years if I was developing because, I, like John said, he's divisive. And I don't think, even going back, I've said this back to his Cleveland days, he's never made anybody on his team better. He's a right. great player. But no yeah. one on his team has become a better player because they play with Kyrie Irving. So, I, I, yeah. I, I no, I would not. I hope he goes to the Knicks or the Lakers because that'll be a fire, a tire fire, and I'll love to watch it from afar. To, Hold on, to, Kyrie to, Irving and Russell Westbrook together? Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, I'm not sure Westbrook will be there, but they, they got enough drama. He goes, to New York. 
He goes to New York. Tibbs will be in jail by Christmas because he'll kill him. <laughs> to use to use the analogy that's going around now in the uh, Charles Barkley, Kevin Durant, uh, you know, the bus and the bus driver and all that. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want Kyrie Irving driving my bus. Right. Yeah. Not if you want to get oh. to your destination. No. No. Up no. A cliff. Yeah, why not? What yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I'm sure I would. Um, especially, yeah. I, you know, and I think you alerted Blue to this, Smitty. Like, if you've got a nothing team going nowhere and you've got nothing really to lose, sure, why not? If you got the money, go get them. What it'll, what it'll do for you, who knows? Probably not much, but you've got nothing to break. But if you've got a team that aspires to success, that is such a – I mean, I can't think of a riskier move. Can you guys? No, not, not, no. At, the, not at the cost. The cost will be exorbitant, and he could, he could kill you within six weeks. And I don't think – again, he won in Cleveland because he played with LeBron, and he made the shot. He had a great finals, no question about it. But other than that, he ruined Boston for like 18 months. Brooklyn's a freaking mess because of his social situation with the vaccination and not being able to play and play a little bit, practice, but play on the road, blah, blah, blah. That wrecked that franchise for a year. And maybe for a couple if he leaves and they get nothing for him. So why would you? I understand general managers all think they're the smartest guy in the world and I will make this guy work. But I can't imagine anybody actually doing it. Well, it started with him when the the Nets went to the bubble or the Celtics went to the bubble and he was like, well, I'm not going right. That, yeah. that's, that's, that started it all. And you, that was probably writing on the wall for what was ahead, the way the world was going and what his stance was. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take him on my team. Look, there'll be a point in his career where you might take him because he's seen the light. And mm, when all players like get to work, I don't. When I don't. All think, players get towards think, the end of their career, Doug. They they are willing to do whatever it takes, right? When I don't. I don't see that in his. I don't see that in his personality. I don't see no. him being that collective kind of guy. I mean, he's a mongol, and I think he always will be. And God bless him for all his social uh, outreach initiatives. He, he's great with the women's basketball. He's great with Native Americans. He's that that stuff's important, and he does it very well and very selflessly. But as a basketball player. I don't think he's ever going to change. And I don't think his career when it's over will be one of my God, he could have been so good and wasn't. Paul, one you're more. sounding like a, you're, you're sounding like a, a, a frustrated general manager. You're saying, well, maybe we're going to be the team that can make him change. Maybe see the no, light. No, you're, you're, no, yeah. <laughs> I, I, no. One of them's out if, there. If, no, that's right. At, that's right. If you get him at the end of his career, when, although you may, he may not, he may not want to change. And I, and you're, normally a guy gets to the end of his career and he hasn't won and he's desperate to win. And he says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to try to be a team guy. He's already, he's already got a chip. And that's the thing, as Doug said, that's why maybe he thinks, well, I don't have to change for anybody because what I did before worked and I won. And you guys haven't. So, so if, okay. So, if, 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 if you point, want him, it might be the end of his career, maybe. To that point, the one way that you usually think I better change my ways is you don't have very much money. You don't earn very much money. This is a guy that seems to earn more money every year. So, what he's going to say to himself, I don't need to change. They're still paying me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> $36 million. $36 million. And the next on the table right now. More. Yeah. And the next contract is going to be four years at $180 million. Right. So, it is so, 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 Paul, why change? Hey, hey, I, I, look, that was the possibility at the end of his career. That's all it was. That's all it was. I, I can think of lots of guys that have done that, but you're right. Because he's already got money and he's already got a ring, he may never change. I think at some point he's just going to say, I'll see you later. Because yeah. he has all the money in the world and all the time, and he's got everything that he's ever wanted. And he might just not want the hassle and just say, Hey, I'll see you later. I'm done. I'm going to go yeah, live my life. I, I think you're right. Who, good who was him. it? Good for him. I'd be the glad late, uh, him. But the late uh, Bison Dele, Brian Williams, the former Brian Williams, one of those just 
kind of picked up and said, I'm gone, I'm, I'm leaving. And he, I mean, he had some other uh, mental health issues too. So, um, you know, uh, maybe that, maybe that's what we're looking at here. Is it unfair to compare in any way, shape or form Harden to Kyrie? Or is there a, is there a definitive similarity there? No, no, they're very different. Bobcat James Harden loves to play basketball. I mean, he's a self-proclaimed Hooper. And I, I just think at this point, uh, James Harden has worn down the tires. He, he just, mm. he's not the player he was. Um, it, 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 you know, you only have so many miles on the tires. I think he might be getting to that point where he's, he's not going to come back to the guy we saw who was the MVP. He just, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not coming back. I, I don't think he can get into the same kind of shape as he gets older. Uh, he still loves to play. I don't think he has the same kind of issues as Kyrie Irving. I just don't think he's as good as he used to be, James Harden. Well, but he's a selfish player. He has been he has uh, been offensively yeah, I, a selfish player when he was at Houston, and and that is, I mean, that's that's the biography of Kyrie, isn't it? Is it not? But I think actually, I think the problem, and both of you guys were close to the Raptors in that series against Philadelphia this year. I thought Harden's problem was he wasn't selfish enough at times. Well, but, <laughs> I but think Harden's not I the think, player he was. He I is think older, right. and he does not have the ability to do what he used to do on on a night-to-night basis. I, I think Harden probably has. I think part Harden probably has the ability to remake his game, where Kyrie doesn't right. later in his career. I also think, and I'm obviously not close to these teams like I am to the Raptors. My perception and my thoughts of talking to people who are is that Harden is an exponentially better teammate. And I think that's going to keep him around and well-liked by the guys around him. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of resentment towards Kyrie. There was in Cleveland, there was in Boston, and I think there will be in Brooklyn. And I don't think everybody you talk to about James Harden says what a good guy, good teammate he is. And I don't think you can find five guys to say that about Kyrie Irving. Uh, let's spend a little time talking about the draft. Um, this is well, what do the Raptors have in terms of the draft? Do they have a first rounder this year? No, 33. So, 33. Third pick in the second round. Um, let me start with that because we, we rarely talk about this, if ever. Is two rounds the right number? Because um, there will be those, those who are invariably, I know it's been this way for a long time, but invariably surprised that the NBA only goes two rounds. And then everybody after that becomes a free agent. And we understand the motive of that, both financially and opportunity-wise. But is that the right answer, Smitty? I think in a perfect world, it would be a one-round draft. And the one-round guys get guaranteed contracts. And everybody else gets to to find a job. Really? And then it's on the teams to go and find guys outside of the 30 guys that get picked. For players, you want that – some some want that second round because they want to get into a system. They want to be – they don't want to go investigate. They want to be taken and, okay, I'm with that team. I'm going to learn that team. But I think in a perfect world, it's a one-round draft and everybody else mm. becomes out there. And then it's on teams that will fill your roster out by scouting, which right. teams, don't want, teams don't want to do because it costs a lot of money and there's a lot of room for mistakes. But I, in, my, in my perfect world, it's a one-round draft. And that's, and that's kind of basically what it is now because none of the stuff in the second round is guaranteed. And look, back in the day, we all know it became crazy. We get to the, yeah, all, of, all of you can remember when the draft was 10 rounds and you get to the ninth round and a GM's picking his buddy who's like, you know, who hangs out with him in a bar on a Thursday night to say he got drafted kind of thing. Um, and I, I like Doug's idea. And, and if you think about it, um, teams look now to sometimes move down or move first-round picks because you've got a bunch of young guys. Why do you want more? And right. then why do you want to guarantee them that money? Because you're drafting guys that are so young right now. I mean, they're one year removed from their high school prom for crying out loud, and you're giving them millions of dollars, and you don't, you don't know the character and how it's if it's fully developed and what kind of a guy you have. So that's why – in the scouting and, and the drafting, when you have them, the workouts, the dinners, 
the human interaction is so different. It, it's so important because you want to know what kind of person you're getting. They pay attention to how does he treat the, the kid that brings the towels? How does he interact with the person that picks him up at the airport? You're looking for a, a, a character person who can play basketball because sometimes you get a basketball player who, well, we just talked about Kyrie Irving, who, who goes sideways from a character standpoint and you guaranteed them all this money. So um, I, I'm okay with the draft being basically two rounds because the second round is nothing's guaranteed. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. the Raptors are, the Raptors were quite happy to get out of the first round this year because they would. It, it, I guess the difference was twenty three to thirty three. The twenty third pick, if they would have kept not made the Thad Young trade and kept it, would have been a three year guaranteed contract at something around six million total. So the guys on your roster, you can't cut them, or you can cut them, but it costs you some money. And you're going to get the same player at thirty three. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. That's the to me. That's the problem with the draft. Is that the difference between 21 and 51 isn't that big. And I think because the, ca- the caliber of the game globally is so high that you're, you're, you're absolutely – you can hit a home run with a guy who's undrafted like Fred Van Vliet. Or you can right, absolutely right. miss on a guy like who's the third overall pick like the guy in the Sacramento who took. And I know, Jones, that you talked about this. That's the worst draft team in the history of drafts. All sports. Yeah. All sports, all time. Look at the Sacramento list of draft picks blown. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it, look, when you, when you get to a point uh, in the draft, uh, the Spurs, the Raptors recently, you know you're going to be picking at the bottom, and you do your homework, mm-hmm. and you bring a guy into the right system that people say, well, who's he? Who's this guy? And then a couple of years later, they're saying, well, where did they get this guy? And, and uh, look, Norman Powell, l- look at some of the Raptor picks, again, that have turned into other people. DeLon Wright at 20. Uh, Pascal Siakam at 27. Fred Van Vliet undrafted. Norman Powell was a trade in the second round. Like, yeah, anybody can pick Valanchunas at, at top five or something like that. But you make your money when you find those guys, the hidden gems. And Dan Tolzman talked about this you go digging and and you find guys that 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 nobody else can and you get them at a bargain and yeah eventually you pay them but it's not like you're paying them and hoping that they're going to turn into something because you had the fourth or fifth pick and Doug Sacramento look I'll throw some other teams out there Minnesota for the longest time was Mm -hmm. a a consistent lottery team and couldn't 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 make the right I mean they had that a guy that picked two guards before and left Steph Curry on the board. He picked yeah. two guys before Steph Curry in the top 10 and left Steph on the board. You know, well, you know the, I had lost, I had lost faith in the draft completely until last year. And, and, and then Cleveland and Toronto go and get two guys that are game changers. Yeah. True game changers. And so now you're saying, okay, uh, you know, what does a Jabari Smith do for you? You know, you know the, the big guy out of Gonzaga, uh, you know, Chet Holmgren, what does he do for you? And, and, and there, there, there's a seven-footer for you, Bob, so you might, you know, the, the return of the seven-footer at the top of the draft. Well, the only thing that occurs to me is you now have a draft. Uh, everybody is 19 years old or you know, one yes. year. And you are now drafting somebody that your coaching staff, an NBA coaching staff, is going to have to develop rather than have – the college coaching staff develop them. And that's, that's really the, the fundamental difference today in the draft from now. And, and, you know, I mean, it's been a few years, more than a Bobcat, few years, but that, I, think, I think one of the issues, that's that your is, point. That's your point, Bobcat. Back in the day, even when a guy came out early, he had three years of college. That's, that's right. And he developed and, and he not only did he develop as a basketball player, he developed as a person because right now when they come out this young, you're teaching life and you're teaching not just the NBA game. You're teaching the game of basketball, a college kid after four, three, four years, at least understood basketball a little. Now you teach them the NBA game right now. The developmental curve is, is huge for these kids coming out. Smith, you wanted to say something? And obviously, obviously some don't make it. Some can, some who have great bodies don't have the mind or the ability or the skill set. Right. One of the great fallacies is that college is about 
teaching basketball. It's always about winning. It's always about coaching and getting their next contract or their next mm -hmm. step up the ladder. College basketball has got nothing to do with developing players because, one, they don't have them long enough, and, two, they don't care. They got to win, and they got to win by doing whatever they got to do to win, not teaching kids how to play. Or I, that's up. a great point. That's a great point because the, the, you want to have great players. You want to be able to recruit like Duke. Um, but you know if you get the top high school player – you're going to have him for exactly one season and you're not interested in teaching him skills no. that will last him for the next 15 years. You're interested in what can you do for me right now? Exactly. Cause and I know you're going to be gone in, yeah. in eight months. And even right? if you're, a, even if you're a mid major coach, you get, you get a blue chip prospect. You think, I don't care how good he gets as long as he can win a game. So I can get my next job. Yeah, that's right. And that's, yeah. It, that's a flaw in it, college basketball and existed for the last 20 years and it's never going to change. It's we all agree. I, it's why I hate the game. So, so let me let me let me just throw this at you. I mean, this is the wildest idea. It'll never happen. Um, but it's one of those things that hockey actually might do better than basketball. And that is you get drafted at 18, and then you can go back to college and play a second year with the college basketball team. I mean, let's face it, the NCAA is changing its rules. You know, the, the name, image, and likeness system has changed so much and is changing so much. You wonder if there's going to be a point where the NBA and the NCAA could ever get together to allow a player to be drafted after one year of college basketball and return to that college basketball team for a second year rather than going to the developmental league or rather than sitting on the bench and doing nothing and not learning how to live as a human being. It'd be, think, great. It'd be great. It'd be great for idea. both sides. I think it's a great idea, but I think what you're seeing with the NBA is they're going the other way. They're starting their own college system with the NBA oh, Ignite right. and all the teams, the, the the Ignite team. I think they may may see more teams like that in the G League. So the NBA would love that because it would be it would give college it would make, give colleges responsibility of training their late round late round draft picks, which is great. They would have to do it themselves. It would no cost except salary. So uh, maybe it's a great idea, but I think you see the NBA going the other way where they're starting their own college system. Interesting. Uh, what are you drafting quickly? Even though it's at 33, does it matter who the, what position? Or are you drafting for a need at that, at that point? Smitty, to you first. I think you're drafting a, a kid who has some athletic ability because you can teach basketball skills, especially shooting. You got to you got to take an athlete because that's the way the game is going. Position wise, does it matter to you? No, but I think they need big, they need small rather than big on this roster. Okay, Jones. Player profile, I think, is big with the Raptors. You look at the way they're going now; they they look for a certain type of player. You know, an athlete, long, uh, angular. Uh, you know, the league has become one of just switching lazily defensively. Um, I, I think they're looking at a certain profile. Um, to Doug's point, they may look at a, a, a like the smaller end of that profile, a guy who's six four or maybe six three, six four, six five, who could play the point. Um, but it, the game has changed in that sense. There were guys 30, 35 years ago that were great athletes that couldn't play basketball, and you drafted the basketball player. Now you look for the athleticism and you try to teach them to become a player and, and, and develop the skill. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think if you're the Raptors, you're looking in a certain wheelhouse, a certain profile of player that, that fits your mold and fits your system that you've had success with. And in a copycat league, you know, Bobcat, we talked about on one of your earlier podcasts, you and John, uh, we talked about why people are after Ananobi. Well, the league is going that way. Positionless play guard, everybody sure. uh, do and, and so. That's the kind of guy you're looking for, and that's why people would call Toronto and ask for a guy like Ananobi. Hey, the league's going that way. Is that guy available? No? Well, let's get him Paul, in the draft. Paul, don't tell Bob you can trade Ananobi because he'll trade him tomorrow, okay? <laughs> I got news for you. His name was at the top of my list to be discussed, and I didn't bring him up once. So I'm proud of you. I'm very proud of you on that, Bob. Very proud of you for that. <laughs> Thank you, Smitty. Uh, boys, 
<laughs> time is our enemy now. We uh, we must off. We thank you as always. Um, we always enjoy the uh, conversation. We look forward to uh, chatting with you again. Even if we don't talk to you, have a nice summer. And uh, we'll, we'll chat down the road. Thanks, boys. All right, kids. See you down the road. Uh, Mr. Shannon and I will return in a moment to wrap this up after these messages. McCown Shannon back with you. Our thanks to uh, Smith & Jones for uh, being... <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe we actually went about 49 minutes without bringing up Ananobi's name because I was there was a couple of times during the whole segment that I was waiting for, here comes Bob, he's trading Ananobi again, he's trading them. Where is that? When, all the, what do the Raptors do this summer? Are they going to be quiet? Where's Ananobi's name? Didn't happen. It was with great restraint. <laughs> Because I knew that this, as soon as I mentioned his name, that you would jump on me. Well, they're and not really getting rid of him, Bob. Bob, they're not getting rid of him. Well, they like him. You know, he's. Do you, you, you know, know why they're not getting? Do you know why they're not getting rid of him? You tell me. Because I am not the general manager. Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's well. You, you, you'd probably you're, as a general manager, you'd probably be out there trying to coach them when Nick isn't around uh, how to, how to play uh, with their back to the hoop. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Right. Okay. How did, how, how, were, Will Chamberlain, it, how did Will Chamberlain do with his back to the hoop? Bob, Bob, a you're a foot than shorter than Wilt Chamberlain. Well, you know, lower the basket. Uh, <laughs> we got a hockey game again tonight. Um, has Tampa Bay got the momentum now? I don't know about momentum, but I, th I, I certainly think that what they can do, and I think they taught themselves what they can do and they won't panic. And uh, I still don't think Andre Vasilevsky has played his best hockey in goal for Tampa. Uh, I fully expect that uh, what's going to happen for them is that if Vasilevsky can be as good as we saw him against the Leafs, against Florida, against the Rangers, that this series will be tied after tonight. Yeah, I, I think that that's the case. Well, we will find out a little bit later on, and uh, in almost assuredly, we will mention it at least, if not discuss it tomorrow. We hope you'll join us for that. For John Shannon and Bob McCallum, see you.